Hey there. Thanks for listening to a special episode of the OnChain Medley podcast. I had mentioned at the beginning of a prior episode that the podcast will be going on hiatus. After the episode aired, I received questions from dedicated listeners who wanted to know why that was. In today's episode, I've decided to delve into this with my guest. This episode explores how my views of Web3 and blockchain have evolved since I started this podcast. It also sheds some light on why I decided to put things on hold indefinitely. If you want to know what I'm up to next, I implore you to listen to the very end. All right, back to my guest. You you brought up an interesting point in your answer there, though, that I'd love to dig in on because, you know, one of the things that I hear all the time people talking about is the benefit of, you know, crypto is that it eliminates the need for trust, right? You don't have to trust anybody. You can perform transactions without trusting. We could talk about why, you know, maybe trust is important, but you were just talking about there. It's like, yes, the system eliminates the need for trust on a transaction basis, but it's the trust in people who are promoting it that is what gets people in. It's, it's, if you didn't trust in Bitcoin to some extent, would you buy it? In this episode, I chat with Keith Corbin. Keith is an engineering and product leader with decades of experience across multiple industries. Keith is also an executive coach with his own practice called Evolution Coaching. Evolution Coaching provides transformational leadership coaching to executives at various levels. So if that's of interest to you, I highly recommend him. In addition, Keith is a mentor and a friend of mine. I wouldn't be doing this episode with anyone else. As you'll soon learn, he's quite discerning and earnest, a combination that is rare to find these days. So without further ado, here's Keith and me riffing on the curious case of Web3 and blockchain. Enjoy. Hi, Coach Keith. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, Lide. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you. Thank you for joining me on this special episode of Unchained Medley, which is still on hiatus, but I really wanted to do this episode with you. So let's just kick it off. Start off with your background, uh, what you've been up to, and when you first came across Web3, what that was like for you. Sure. Um, well, my background is that I am was a self-taught engineer, spent about 15 years as an engineer, moved into product management and development and uh, also operate as an executive coach. And really got excited about Web3, crypto, blockchain, all of that as new technology, something that just to kind of discover and learn about and see how it worked. And really was trying to make up my mind about it and have really enjoyed your podcast as a way to kind of go through a journey to understand different aspects of Web3 and what it can mean and different perspectives on it. No, yeah, that makes total sense. So when you first learned about it or when you, I don't know how long ago that was, what are some of your initial thoughts about Web3, blockchain, Bitcoin, crypto in general? What was that experience like for you? At first, heard about it, I had a, a co-worker who was big into Bitcoin and continuously prompted me to buy Bitcoin. And it is a regret that I didn't because that was back, <laughs> oh, I don't even know what year that was, probably 2011 or something. So had I made that decision, we wouldn't be having this conversation. I'd be on an <laughs> island somewhere. That is true. You'd be too cool for school. I never would have met you. Yeah, yeah we never would have happened. So, um, but I, I didn't make that decision. And at the time I thought, wow, this is just, it's a gimmick, right? I, I just didn't buy into it. And then certainly I've seen how it's grown since then. And, and it's become 
a, a very expensive gimmick maybe or, or more than a gimmick. But that's really where I first kind of learned about it and certainly been paying attention because everything has evolved into NFTs, blockchain in general as a technology. And now, you know, more of the conversation of thinking about the metaverse. So you said you thought it was a gimmick. Why did you think it was a gimmick? It just, you know, it, at that time, it was people were were mining Bitcoin, right? It was just this thing you could send your computer, you could set up your computer to mine Bitcoin. And it was this, it, it felt like a get rich quick scheme. And it, it was, right? Had I, had I bought in, then I, I could have gotten rich quick. But it, it felt like that. It felt it had the, the trappings of a scheme rather than something real. It didn't feel like there was anything about Bitcoin to trust. It was just out in the world. Interesting. Would you say you're that way with technology in general? Like, are you a Luddite or was it particularly Bitcoin that you were like, Sims off, off? Or do you think most new technologies, are you sort of slow to adopt them in general? I would say I, I tend to be an early adopter of technology. You know, my first real like technology project was a webzine that me and a college roommate and his brother started back in 1990, ooh, probably 96. And we were making money at that time by you know, selling books and CDs that we would review on the website through Amazon. It was enough to pay our hosting costs. So really early in, in the phase of, of having a website and doing that, and in terms of technology in the home, smart speakers, all of those things, having you know, the very first Android phone that came out, I had, I would say, usually a pretty earlier adopter of new technology. And... I think the, the fact that Bitcoin was trying to replace currency felt a little different. It didn't feel like technology that had a direct, clear value in the same way that getting a smartphone when, when those were first coming out felt like adopting new technology. Okay, that makes sense. I think I, I had the opposite reaction to you when I first learned about, about Bitcoin. Like I thought, oh, this could be an interesting maybe currency, a money of some sort for cross-border trade. So across the world. You don't have to think about conversion fees. You just have to like, you can just pay directly. It's fast, it's quick. So I thought that was interesting. So for me, the promise of Bitcoin, at least as it was sold at the time, I was like, oh, this could be an interesting way if things progress away on a more regulated path in the future. And that really never happened. So, but, you know, I had a, I had more of a positive outlook. So that's just, <laughs> that's just interesting to hear that you're like, you know, we have just different approaches to that. I, I, maybe maybe you were smarter than me and seeing or thinking through some of those potentials earlier. I think later I started thinking about that and got more interested in, oh, could this replace currency? Could this help change capitalism in the way it operates? And the the more I've looked into it, it just seems like capitalism with less regulation. <laughs> yeah, I think you're right. I, I mean, even though I, I thought that was a you know, possibility in the future, just unlocking the borders across trade and making remittance and money payments easier. Uh, I also still didn't, you know, fully like believe or invest in it. Like I didn't put all my savings in 2011, like everybody else did. I just put like enough that I was like, I'm not sure about this. <laughs> if it pans out, great. If it doesn't, it doesn't. And so I was still like skeptical, I think like you, but I just was particularly excited about the potential of it. But, you know, it's been 10 years now and I still haven't seen any progress in that direction. And so obviously we had things like NFTs that popped up last year that became the new fad. And, and it's interesting to see how things have progressed in the last few years. So yeah, what do you have to say about, you know, the market uh, the last couple of years, how things have turned and how we went from, you know, 
super rapid highs all the way down to like the bottom and maybe it's a permanent bottom who knows of the market yeah well it's interesting i mean you talked about nfts being a year ago and that's you know when about when you launched your your podcast right looking into that yeah and so i'm curious you know that was the craze and, and then through this year we've seen this drop off how has your opinion evolved uh, over the course of of doing the podcast and, and learning more about Web3 and, and crypto and NFTs? Yeah, that's a great question. I think for me, when I, I started the podcast, because there was this frenzy around Web3 and blockchain, and I would ask every all my friends who worked in tech, traditional tech companies. So and everyone would be like, what is that? Nobody really knew. And these were like similarly smart tech savvy people who were just kind of like, yeah, I've heard about it. Not too sure how it applies to me day to day. So I haven't looked into it. But then on the other side of like my world would be these people who were like hyping it up, making it seem like, oh my God, this is going to change everything. Like if you're not in it, you're losing. And I was like, that's kind of weird. How do two different groups have, I mean, that's not weird actually in this country, <laughs> everybody, it's a very polarizing culture, polarizing times, but I just thought it was very interesting. And so I was like, maybe there's something I'm missing. And so I started to read about it online on Twitter, did my research and read it just all over the internet. And I was interested. Everyone's people that are seemingly smart, like tech people, mainly VCs, but you know, I'm <laughs> not sure if I should just think they're really smart, but people that are like well-respected in the tech tech world, I would say, were hyping it up and like doing all these lectures and, and webinars and, and really just making it seem like everyone is missing out who wasn't in it. So I decided to start the podcast to kind of bridge the gap between people that are sort of in traditional tech and everybody else to kind of say like, well, there's this thing everyone's talking about. I know a little bit about it from like a few years ago and learned about Bitcoin back in 2011, 2012, like you, but like, I haven't really kept up with it over the last you know few years because I've been busy with life and stuff, but now that it's sort of getting a resurgence, I do want to kind of see if there's something here because initially it was just Bitcoin, crypto, uh, how do you get the value to go up and get excited about it? But now there's NFTs, there's DAOs, there's all these other like technology applications. And I was like, maybe there's something here. Let me go look into it. Uh, and so I started the podcast for that reason. And I really thought I'd be doing this podcast for <laughs> a long time. I was like, oh, I'm going to do this for a while. It's going to be my thing, my side project and all that. But I think kind of like the NFT market, how quickly it rose, I also just kind of was riding that wave. And then as I would go to events and talk to people, I noticed that a lot of people didn't know anything about why they believed in it. People were just kind of drinking the Kool-Aid. When I would ask people questions, nobody had really good, thoughtful answers. And then I was starting to realize that, oh my God, everyone is just in it for the hype. And it's kind of like scary. And I was surprised to have run out of things to talk about in only 12 episodes. So I'm not sure that answers your question, but that's sort of where where my mind was. And I can talk more about that later, but I just wanted to pause. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, right? There's certainly an element of it where you look around and all these smart people are super excited, right? About the possibilities of, of NFTs and DAOs and crypto. And then, but the more you pull back the covers, you know, it's um, it seems like there isn't that much there. Yeah, and I was surprised because I would go, I'd ask questions like, so what, what can it solve? And they, people would tell me things like, oh, it's going to change the world. It's going to... Improve the one thing everyone kept saying to me, and I guess as a woman and a woman of color and black woman in particular, they were like, "It's going to end, you know, discrimination." And people would just say all these things to me, and I feel like, "Huh? How so? Explain to me how it's going to make equality accessible for everyone." 
And I never would really get a good essay. It's like, well, now you can just like spin up your own company in a DAO. You don't, you don't need the person. I'm like, I can do that today, really. <laughs> no one's stopping me from doing that. Or they'd be like, oh, as an NFT, it's for the artists. Artists in general have not gotten any recognition. And I would look around the NFT landscape and I'm like, the artists who are actually getting recognition are artists who have already been popular in the pre-NFT world. And they're doing this for the money and the hype. The artists who have been struggling, many of them are still struggling because they don't have the notoriety to actually like sell their projects. And nobody really cared about that. It's very interesting that people were touting these things. But when you pull back the covers, as you said, there was a lot of holes, but nobody really wanted to talk about those holes and how to fix them. And it just used to infuriate me. And I was like, I don't get it. And so as I was in the episodes on podcasts, I had topics I wanted to learn about. So I focused a lot of my episodes on a new topic or a new theme that I wanted to learn about. And I really thought that the, the industry was going to evolve to the point that I, would, I wouldn't be able to like run out of things to talk about. And over time, as I was reaching out to guests, I was like, it's all the same thing. It's like a project they're shilling or something they're doing. And I just didn't have an interest in doing that anymore. I decided I need to take a break until I get to a point where maybe something happens in this ecosystem that is interesting and new to me, or I want to pivot the podcast in a different direction. But that was really kind of how things evolved for me. Um, I went from, you know, feeling really good about it, positive about it, to being skeptical to now sort of feeling a little bit bearish on the entire ecosystem. And I'm not even really sure where, where to go from there. So sometimes I'm like, maybe, maybe, maybe it's me. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm an idiot. Maybe it's something I'm not seeing, but time will tell, I guess. Time, time will tell. And, you know, it's interesting. I, maybe we can talk about sort of the, the NFTs a little bit, because you did spend a, quite a few episodes talking about it from a music standpoint, from an art standpoint. And, and, and it's right. I think there are some some well-known artists seem to be doing well with it, and it's created a way where, you know, not only can they profit from selling the art, but they can profit from when that art goes up in value, and they continue to to get a percentage, which which I think is somewhat interesting. But the democratization hasn't happened, and I think the smaller artists seem like they've been more taken advantage of by people who are generating, you know, a thousand. Um, monkeys or or whatever they decide to create using somebody else's work and then you know they're getting some cut or something or it's taking art from somebody and not licensing it appropriately or not looking at those pieces and it's just kind of going quickly to trying to generate again kind of what feels like maybe a get rich quick scheme as opposed to something that's really about can we do something unique and different with digital art because NFTs exist that we couldn't have done otherwise? I think you're right. And, and my last guest, Tante, who talked about this, that was his main argument. He's in the digital art space and he's like, I'm in the digital art space. And I think digital art is should be considered art. And I also struggled with the NFT space in general. And I think what's telling a lot about the ecosystem that I noticed was when people criticized it, everyone would just, you know, reach back out with like insults and, you know, slang, you're not going to make it, things like that. And nobody really was really trying to educate people on why they were wrong. It was always a very negative energy if you spoke out against it. To me, it felt very sort of like authoritarian or I don't know, it just didn't feel, it didn't feel very community friendly, even though they were touting community as well as a part of the ecosystem. So there's a lot of just contradictory behavior and ethos that I, I also questioned and I was just surprised to see that people that are seemingly smart were pushing this thing and no one is even really given an answer for the crash that has happened in the last year or so, which is just mind-blowing to me. Why do you think that is? 
do you, do you get a sense of maybe how these people who are such big fans of this movement see the world differently than maybe you or I, where we're missing something? I don't know. I really, I really don't know. The only thing I can come up with is when I think about venture capitalists in general, like you guys already have billions, maybe trillions of dollars. And the ones that were really pushing this thing really hard, I felt like they were eventually they were doing the same as they could make more money. But then I, a part of me was like, it can't be. They already have a lot of money. So maybe there's something there that I'm missing. Maybe in 10 years, we'll all be idiots and they'll be right. But I still can't reconcile how, you know, somebody who's seemingly worth billions of dollars is pushing this technology so hard that everyone, technology is to question the viability and veracity of the technology. I, part of me, I think, refused to believe it was just the Ponzi scheme, you know, for them to just make more money because I'm like, they already have money. So what's what's in it for them to do that? And so I don't know the answer to that question because it doesn't identify with my logic. And so I don't know why, you know, these people are pushing this thing so hard that maybe you and I are missing it. Maybe it is about the money, right? Maybe you can never have too much money. <laughs> so maybe that's what it is about. And if that's the case, then I think it's really sad that a lot of people who are not doing well financially or have a lot to lose got sort of swindled in the system. You know, you hear about people who are who who mortgaged their houses into the new coin that a VC was back in or who and emptied their life savings. And I'm like, in my head, I'm like, you're an idiot. Why are you doing that? But I think when they also see people like that, they're like, well, this guy is really smart and really rich. So I'm sure he's not just saying this if he didn't believe in it or something like that. And they, they trust those people as authorities as well. So don't know if that answers your question. I don't know. The whole space is confusing. And I really wish I had answers. I really don't. <laughs> well, you, you brought up an interesting point in your answer there, though, that I'd love to dig in on. Because, you know, one of the things that I hear all the time people talking about is the benefit of, you know, crypto is that it eliminates the need for trust, right? You don't have to trust anybody. You can perform transactions without trust. And we could talk about why, you know, maybe trust is important. But you were just talking about there, it's like, yes, the system eliminates the need for trust on a transaction basis, but it's the trust in people who are promoting it that is what gets people in. It's it's if you didn't trust in Bitcoin to some extent, would you buy it? And so it's this interesting kind of dichotomy I've seen come up between a system that's supposedly a trust-free system, and yet the fact that you know it is because people who we recognize as smart people are saying that it's true or that it's valuable. People are investing large sums of money based on that trust. Yeah. To your point, right, about that example, that's a good point, right? Let's just take a regular web tube born SaaS company. You know, if I go on the website and I'm like, this seems interesting, I look at reviews and I'm like, oh, okay, so-and-so is using this. It must be good. It fits my needs and I'll do it. I think to your point, right, Bitcoin had these well-respected figures in tech as the reviewers, because you couldn't really go on the website yourself and read about it because there really wasn't much there or blo blockchain in general, crypto. And so I think people were just kind of blindly putting their faith in, in these individuals who don't have a lot to lose because they already have so much. And it's just sad to see the outcome. But now that, you know, now that the crashes happen, right, it'd be good if they came out and said like, you know, we were wrong or this is why it's happening. It makes sense kind of like how people in the market do for like stocks and things like that. I haven't really heard that from anyone as to why that is. People are still standing steadfast behind the belief. So they're not talking about it at all. So a lot of people are either just like not saying anything about it and moving on, or the ones that push really hard are still maintaining their, their arguments. Yeah. 
Well, you know, and it's interesting because there's this the part of NFTs and whether those are worth it. And there's the question of the coins themselves. And then there's the underlying blockchain technology, right? The the whole idea of this of the ledger that it, it's created. And you know, I'm curious, have you seen any use cases for blockchain where you've looked at that and said, like, yeah, that that makes sense. That's that's a good way of of utilizing blockchain. I haven't seen anything that you can't do with existing technology today. And so I, to answer your question, I haven't. Things have been telling me are like, well, it's been used to trace supply chain, verifying where your goods originate from, the quality of your goods and things like that. But like every argument that you hear out there, it's like, well, garbage in, garbage out. Somebody still has to put that information into the system. So you might as well just use a regular database. You don't have to use a blockchain for that because even if you put the wrong thing in the system, then that stays forever, which is actually concerning. And so I haven't seen a really good argument for what you could use it for. Um, I think, you know, I think somebody on my, on my podcast uh, said the other day, it was like the best example of blockchain or use case is Bitcoin, which I would agree with if global money, cross-border sort of economy sort of took place in the way I'd imagined it to be. I'm like, yeah, that makes sense. I can go to any country and everybody takes Bitcoin and I don't have to worry about changing my money. But we never got there. So outside of that example, I can't really think of anything. Have you seen anything or do you have any suggestions or ideas of potentially useful applications of the technology? Yeah, well, you, you mentioned uh, Bitcoin and I think... You know, when I look at Bitcoin, I think, well, that'd be great if I want to make an illegal transaction using cryptocurrency, right? <laughs> Rather than giving my credit card, that makes a lot more sense because then nobody can get it. But, you know, if everything else, it doesn't seem like there's that same value. Most systems have trust. And I think, you know, you talked about cross-border. And if you were doing cross-border transactions and in certain countries, you can't necessarily trust the fiat currency. Does that create a way to to help? Maybe. But we haven't seen that come to life yet because I think, you know, the the tendencies of the system have really excluded a lot of people who may get the most use out of it because it's so expensive to use and, and get access to. And so I think it's an interesting technology and I feel like there, you know, it's a, it's a um, solution in search of a problem. And at some point, there may be a problem that we find and, and blockchain becomes a great solution for. But I, with you, I agree that the never being able to delete anything on it is concerning. There's a concerning aspect of the, you know, the transparency of it is both great and scary. That if, if you, for example, with NFTs, if you bought an NFT and people know which NFT you bought, they can now find your wallet and they can find the other transactions you bought, everything else you purchased. Which, if you think about that from a privacy standpoint, is rather concerning. Granted, your wallet's not necessarily tied to your name, but if, if I know because of your uh, avatar in, or your icon in Twitter, a NFT you've purchased, I can now find out a whole lot more about you in terms of other transactions you've made and other things, which, again, it's, it's kind of a trade-off of, of privacy, that goes along with this. Yeah. And it's funny you brought that brought that example up. It's so true. It's a trade-off for privacy, but people are actually doing that, but to figure out which coins to buy next or NFTs to buy next. And the people who, I guess you have this like crypto whales, people who hold a lot of crypto in their wallets. And they were sort of like swindling people in the sense of they would like buy the next NFT they wanted to pump. And 
people would like track their wallet. Okay, these people bought Board Ape and they bought this CryptoPunks or whatever. And now they're buying this like no-name NFT and everyone would go buy that because they've seen these people as like leaders in the market and, you know, they have an eye on the future. And then as soon as they go buy a bunch of that, the price goes up, those guys dump it, the price falls, they move on to the next thing. And so there were people who were doing that for a very long time for like illegal things. You didn't know who they were. But I guess to what you said earlier, right, maybe the best application for Bitcoin is illegal activities. And who wants that? <laughs> but hey, maybe. <laughs> maybe. Well, and it goes into, right, I mean, this, the, the, one of the, the benefits of Bitcoin, right, is it's not regulated. But the advantage of regulation, you know, if you start touting stocks in a way to try to artificially boost it and then, and then cash in, the SEC is going to come knocking on your door. You know, potentially if not if you're Elon Musk, but for everybody else, they're <laughs> going to come knock you on your door. With Bitcoin, there is no checks and balances if yeah. somebody does that. There's no, you can, you know, if you've got enough celebrity, you can buy something, tweet about it, build it up and dump it. And there's no regulation to hold that back. And so again, it's that, it's the the elimination of trust doesn't necessarily help. Because just because you just because you know the transactions are working, you still have to be able to trust the people who are in and around the system to be operating in good faith. And without a regulator to ensure that that trust is kept, there's there's a lot of risk. I think. I agree. There's no accountability. But to that point, then the main thing I got from it was two things. It was what you mentioned. I think illegal activity was a good use of Bitcoin. And if you're a big enough celebrity or somebody with enough cachet, and you want to make a quick buck, well, in this case, millions of bucks, you could just use that to get away with a lot of sort of illegal activity. And so I think you have to have the money and the clout for Bitcoin to be useful, or you have to be a crook. (laughs) And if you're neither of those things, it's scary. You're just left holding the bag, really. Which which makes it very similar, makes it very similar to the rest of capitalism in a way, right? That if you have, if you have clout and you have money, it's easy to make, easier to make more and to build off of that. And if you don't, it's harder to, and and it's where it really hasn't changed that system. It hasn't reversed it to give power to people who don't traditionally have it. Exactly. And I think what you said, that's the lie that everyone kept saying. And I was like, no, it's just capitalism and steroids. And so I think we just have to be honest about that. And if, you know, if we're just in it to make a quick buck, I'm a capitalist, by the way, I would just be like, sure, let's all make a quick buck. Let's go home. But let's not lie and gaslight people and say things like, oh, it's going to create gender equality and equality, fiscal equality, and everyone's going to do better. Like, that's a lie. Let's just not say that. Let's just say we're here to make a quick buck. I felt like the last year was just a lot of gaslighting, a lack of knowledge and gaslighting. And that really infuriated me. So that's why I did the podcast. And, you know, we'll see. Maybe I'll pick it up again, but not inspired right now, too. Well, you know, you talked about on the podcast having, you know, purchased some NFTs, mentioned having some some coin, Bitcoin. How do you feel now about like those holdings you have, the things that the things that you've done and played with and experimented with? Well, I'm glad I did that. For example, I had Bitcoin a long time ago. I still haven't sold it, which I need to just do right now <laughs> because I don't think it's ever going back up. I'm more of a buy and hold person, which is like a bad, I'm just a bad person in that sense where even with stocks, I'll just buy it and hold it forever. And I'm like, man, I missed the window to sell it and make money. Uh, but that's, that's because I never put in enough money that I'm more than I'm willing to lose. And so because of that, the money never really becomes anything sort of super significant for me to cash out. But, you know, I have to say like, you know, caveat, everyone's case is different, but that was, that's just my personal uh, case right now. 
And so to answer your question about what I did, I just have them. I haven't sold them. I haven't done anything with them. They're just they're just in it. In it. I think the NFT space was interesting for me because I wanted to sort of just see instead of me sitting on the outside and criticizing it. I was like, let me actually just like buy it. It's a lot of money on gas fees. A lot of money if things go wrong. The system if there's a glitch in the system. You're out of a, a additional gas fee. So I've lost, you know, I would say hundreds, maybe even thousands of dollars on just like stupid transactions that didn't that didn't go well the first time. But I wouldn't trade that experience because I'm like, now I know what it's like. I'm now more even convinced in my conviction that this might all be a Ponzi scheme and a scam. And I actually was in the system and I saw how it worked from the inside as opposed to actually, you know, being on the outside and just criticizing it. So I don't regret doing it. I just, it's one of those things where I'm like, okay, I had a hunch. I wasn't sure. I played with it. I got burned. Maybe not burned, just like I got, what happens when a fire just hits you a little bit? <laughs> I got, I got hot. I don't know. <laughs> Nails or nicked or something. Right. Like it was, it was money that I was willing to lose because of my own curiosity. Maybe curiosity killed the cat, but I'm still here. But <laughs> to, the, to answer your question, I'm glad I did it. It was a great experience. Um, I'm glad I actually played around with stuff, bought some coins, bought some NFTs, but I didn't go crazy. I wasn't, you know, trying to get a board ape or the latest, coolest NFT. It was just, it was just like stupid things on the market. I was like, oh, this could be interesting. And then I wanted to support I had a guy on the podcast who has an NFT project called Inchim Warriors. And I was like, oh, I'm going to invite him to speak, but let me just even like buy one out, out of support for what they were doing because they were saying they were trying to use the money to fund up and coming artists. And I've actually been to one of their events in real life and they did do that. So I was like, okay, I'm glad I supported them. Somebody was able to sell their, their work of art. That artist got paid from what I was told fairly. So that made me feel good about it. That was more of a purpose-driven purchase as opposed to um, me just buying it to see grow in value and then pawning off to the next person. So that wasn't my intention there. So I don't really have any of those NFTs, just that one that I bought. Did you buy any? Do you own any crypto NFTs? Are you part of any DAOs? You know, it, it's funny. I have a wallet. The wallet is uh, currently empty, although due to a membership that I have, I will be getting my first NFT. Oh, and, fun. Um, it, it, it's free, which is exactly how much I was willing to pay for it. <laughs> but we'll see. You know, it, it's been interesting to set up the wall, like to go through that experience, to understand how these pieces are connected together. And it also, you know, it goes to the, everybody talks about it as decentralized. It's like, no, it really isn't because you have to have like all these pieces in place that, that, that string everything together. And I had to register at this site in order to, I think it's pre-mint in order to get everything set up. And it's like, well, that's great, but it's not really the promise of a decentralized way that just anybody can do this. Like you do need to still use these tools. And it's interesting to see how those pieces fit together. Um, but yeah, I I um, I still have not, and I, I don't feel the uh, I, I'm content to mostly experience this vicariously through others and and watch the price fall and feel good about it, um, and just forget about the place when I didn't buy back back when I was cheap. <laughs> You're a smart man, Keith. I should learn to like be content with the experiences of others. <laughs> I just I just don't. <laughs> Where's the fun in that? You gotta live a little. You do, right? And and uh, you know, I guess well, so what would you say to somebody who was curious about NFTs and thinking about making the plunge and, and wanting to buy one? What guidance would you give them? I would say don't quit your day job. <laughs> but but in all seriousness, I 
I mean, I think if people are curious about it, if they think there's something meaningful there, I'm like, sure, go for it. But I think you have to be honest as to why you're trying to get into it. I would say that's the first thing. So are you in it to make a quick buck? Are you in it because you want to, you know, sell your art or make money or whatever? What is the reason why you want to do that? So know why you're doing it first is what I would say. And then depending on your answer, I'm going to tell you don't do it or go for it. But I think NFTs could be like a fun digital art thing if they actually can figure out, make it not be a JPEG (laughs) on blockchain. I think it's like fun from like an artsy perspective. So if you were somebody who was interested in that, I think it'd be fun to play around with. If you're looking at it from an investment perspective or to make money, I think you missed the window, buddy. And uh, just don't, don't waste your time. Do what Keith did. Get someone to give it to you for free and go through the process, set up your wallet and go through that process. And maybe you can also come up with a better solution to make the whole eco- ecosystem less painful UX-wise because it's very painful. It, it is painful UX-wise, I have to say. I mean, you're a product person. What do you think? How was that experience for you? It felt like a lot of steps. Uh, and maybe it's, you know, because I didn't have a wallet ahead of time in those things and it'd be easier the next time around or if I now went, you know, to connect my wallet to something else. But it it didn't feel like, you know, at this point, making a, a transaction using fiat currency, you know, using a credit card is really one of the simplest things you can do online, right? It's it's so easy, and especially to do from your phone. It, it's with, with Apple Pay or Google Pay, it's, it's one step. It's really simple, really straightforward. And transactions involving uh, crypto seem to be a lot more convoluted at this point, a little bit more difficult. And so I think there's definitely something there that would have to get easier to get that use case. But, you know, we, we've talked about sort of NFTs. We've talked about blockchain itself. We've talked about cryptocurrency. One of the things we haven't talked about is, is DAOs and the organizing structure of DAOs. Where did you end up kind of feeling about about the the potential of DAOs? I thought of it as it's good. It was a good way to fundraise because of the novelty involved in it. So basically, right now, if you want to fundraise in the non-crypto world, the blockchain world, you'd probably like go on GoFundMe or Kickstarter or one of those platforms. And it's sort of hard to stand out because there's just so many. And I think with DAOs, because it's so new and novel, people were just like, I can set up a DAO and like do it that way instead. And so I do think that if you're somebody who's trying to fundraise and you need a new way to do it, whether or not it's for scammer reasons or actual legit reasons, DAOs are interested from a novelty perspective. You can get attention through that and people are curious about it so they're willing to participate in it. But as far as like usefulness of DAOs, I, I still don't know. I think the jury is still out on that one um, because I see people raising money for all kinds of stupid things that I don't think make sense. <laughs> So it feels to me right now like it's a very expensive membership, overpriced membership for some access to something. But I do think like it's going to eventually go the way where it's like, you may have a DAO, but it's not, maybe you're not really on the blockchain. It's just like a big group chat and <laughs> it's, it's giving you access to something. So the concept of DAOs, whether or not it lives on the blockchain or not, could end up being like an actual application that people gravitate towards as a way to just feel a part of community and support an organization or something or belief system that they want to see out there in the world. But I think whether or not it needs to live on the blockchain is is a question I have on that. And to what you mentioned earlier, I don't think it's ever going to be decentralized or autonomous. I think you're always going to have it be on that scale, maybe more centralized and less autonomous because you're going to have different people in a community having them do different tasks. And people have to be uh, self-organized enough or at least self-dedicated enough to want to do that without you overseeing them. Uh, and I find that, I find it's going to be hard to sort of organize people together to come together towards a goal. 
But if you really want to believe in this like decentralized world, I don't think that's ever going to happen. But I think it could be an interesting way where you have a few leaders leading a community or group to do something. But I don't know if it's necessarily going to be on the blockchain. I think it's like already happening in a real world anyway. But curious thought on DAOs. What do you think about DAOs? I think your point on investment is interesting because it is a way that you could, you know, while it's really easy to set up a company, I mean, LLC or something, you could do it tomorrow. But setting, but getting investments for that LLC, if those investments were going to, I don't know, maybe, maybe even as I'm talking, it sort of like it falls apart, right? It's like, yeah, you, you, you can still take investments and track it and do it on your own without actually issuing stock. I mean, if you wanted to get to the point of issuing stock, maybe a DAO is easier than taking a company public. Maybe that is true. But there's a lot of like midway points between that in terms of raising funds and, and things you could do. Um, I do think the concept of a DAO of people having you know the the ability to to help control the organization is positive, but I think there's other ways of doing that as well. I mean, you know, co-ops have existed for I don't know how many hundreds of years and and have ways of of you know sharing income and, and other aspects. And so there are some community things that have existed. The DAO seems like the latest digital form of it. And I, you know, kind of agree with you. It's like, I don't know that it needs to be on the blockchain to do it effectively. Um, maybe at a certain size it helps, but I don't know. I, I get the sense that it's it's uh, it's interesting. It's interesting what it's trying to create, but again, is the blockchain the right way to do it or the right solution for it? Or is there something that already exists that's simpler, cheaper, easier? that that solves the same problem. Yeah, that's fair. I think your example of co-op actually is perfect because they exist, but I don't think it's very, it's much well like known or talked about. And so I can see something like a DAO kind of being like a new version of a co-op that everybody partakes in for whatever cause or mission or use case that they want to do because you don't really have that concept right now. So I can see that like accelerating that sort of behavior, but to what we both agreed upon, I don't think it's going to end up being on the blockchain. It's just going to be something that we do in the real world. But maybe you call it a DAO for legacy reasons, but it's not really a DAO. <laughs> yeah, very interesting. So then like, you know, just last questions for you then. If you if you could like predict the future, where do you see things going with blockchain or Bitcoin? Do you think we're going to be, be laughing stocks and someone's going to be like, ha, Lydia and Keith, this two idiots were making fun of blockchain and Bitcoin. Jokes on them now. <laughs> what do you think? Even if that ever happened, how would you feel about it? I, I'm sure this so this podcast someday will be posted <laughs> under the, the heading of two idiots who didn't get it and the world will Didn't laugh. get it. Yeah, like this didn't age well. <laughs> and that, that, that may be true. There may be something. I think I think it's overhyped to the extent that it, it, it isn't changing things as much as, as it could. And I don't know if in the technology as it exists today, it has the potential to without something changing. You know, I, I'm skeptical that there could be some other uses. I think blockchain is interesting. I think there could be some other uses of it. And at some point, you know, I, I think about it in the way, way evolution often happens, right? I mean, there's, there's a, a process of adaptation, right? Where things evolve, you know, the survival of the fittest and, and as things evolve, it kind of gets better. And then at some point, there's also this this concept, even in Darwin, of of uh, pre-adaptation or what's been now called an exaptation, where something all of a sudden finds a new use, right? So the the perfect example that everybody gives is the bird's wing, which didn't develop for flight, or the dinosaur's wing, depending. It didn't develop for flight, but developed 
probably feathers developed for helping with oil secretion, which then eventually developed to help create warmth. And then through that process, at some point, some of these dinosaurs were in trees and they started gliding out and all of a sudden it had a completely new use all of a sudden, and then that could evolve. And so is there the possibility that blockchain, which was sort of an adaption for new ways of thinking about ledgers and things we could do, could be suddenly adapted into some brand new use we haven't thought of and be very exciting? Yes, I think that's entirely possible. I just can't predict what that might be. Yeah, that's fair. Um, I think we're both kind of just saying, well, we'll see how things evolve. And, you know, we wouldn't be surprised if there actually was a good, compelling use case. But even if there weren't, we wouldn't be surprised either. I agree. You know, I think there are some things that, uh, despite all their promise, never really take off and become a useful thing. You know, this maybe this is just the very next Betamax where uh, people really thought it was great and swore it was great and it just never caught on. So. But, you know, this has generated a lot more money for, for a handful of people than, than Betamax ever did. So I think in that, there's always going to be, there are those who are doing well because of it, and they have an entrenched benefit or entrenched need to perpetuate it and keep it going. And so I don't think it's just going to disappear because too many people with too much money are too invested. Yeah, that's how I sort of think about it, too. But then I'm also like, well, they have too much money that it'll be fine if nothing ever materializes. <laughs> so, Oh, I, I don't worry about those people if it all drops to zero. Most of the ones, most of them will be quite fine. And, um, you know, I saw some statistic, right, of the concentration of wealth in Bitcoin means it is even smaller than uh, in the rest of the economy. So the, the risk is to a small number of people who probably will do just fine. Um, but they're also entrenched enough and have enough power that they can sustain it as well through the things we've talked about of just their own prestige. Yeah, we'll see what happens. I mean, I guess, you know, you'll be needing to coach a lot of CEOs of failed blockchain companies very soon, walk them through and, and help them through their sorrows because the last few months have been sad of all these companies shutting down or going bankrupt. I'm like, can you even fall for bankruptcy on the blockchain? How does that work? I don't know. Just very interesting. Well, I, yeah, that with, with blockchain, I don't imagine you can, right? But yes, I think it is It is sad what's happening to those companies. I think it's, you know, to me, that does strike me a little bit of the dot-com bubble bursting, right? Where everybody and anybody created a web business and not all of them were sustainable. Not all of them are, were legit or valuable. And I think there will be some things that survive and, and create value. And maybe what we're seeing is just the, um, you know, it's hard to see the value because there's so much noise. But when all of this dies down, maybe we will see the things that truly do survive and make a difference. Maybe that's my most optimistic take on what could happen. Um, but I, I don't I don't see it yet. Yeah, people are drawing parallels between this and the dot com. And I'm like, maybe this is just going to fizzle and there is no resurrection of anything because the dot com yes there was a bubble but then a lot of you saw a lot of great companies come out of that i'm also like it's very possible that nothing's going to survive here or something's going to survive but it's not going to be it's not going to become the next google like one of those big massive companies yeah i i kind of i agree it's sort of like the it's like the dot com bubble bursting but i can't point to who an amazon would be or who a google would be or somebody that's going to you know go on to become one of the largest companies in the world that's currently in this space 
it just doesn't seem like there is an equivalent. It almost seems like it, it got too big too fast, and and now it's the bottom's dropping out a bit. Fun times, man. Fun times. Well, I do want to let you go. I do enjoy you, you know, being on this conversation with me and having the back and forth dialogue. So, where can people find you, Keith? Like, I know you're doing your coaching business. I'd love to for you to just tell others more about it. What you do in there? What kind of founders you work with or CEOs you work with, and and how can people connect with you outside of this podcast? Sure. Yes, I, I run a um, executive coaching business called uh, EvolutionCoach.org. You can find me on the website there, or uh, on Twitter, uh, KJ Corbin. And you know, I, I tend to work with technology leaders, really uh, leaders who are in transitions and usually stepping up to larger roles, so stepping up to a C-level role or stepping up to run an organization, and help them work through their own evolution as they as they grow into what they're trying to do next. Yeah, you got people reach out and really enjoyed getting to have this conversation with you, Lydie. Yeah, thank you so much, Keith. And I look forward to chatting some more. By the way, for those who don't know, Keith is my mentor and I have a lot of respect for him. So you should definitely check him out. Thanks for joining the podcast, Keith. I hope you enjoyed this episode and I hope I was able to provide some more insights. As I stated, I might pick things back up if the landscape evolves in a more interesting direction. But for now, I like to think of this as the end of a short series. And once again, I can't thank you all enough for listening over the past few months. I am really deeply grateful. As for what I'm up to next, I'm starting a company, not a Web3 company, a Web2 company. <laughs> and I'm going to be sharing that journey on Twitter. So if you're curious, give me a follow at laide 7 Once again, it's laide. 007. I'll also link that in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Lyde, and until next time.